This morning, as we come to the end of this Jonah series, um, we're probably still wondering, what, what's this book about? What, you know, we've learned some stuff about Jonah, the fish, his prayer, his preaching in Nineveh. But what, what's the book about? Why is it in the Bible, and what does it have to say to us today? I hope that by the time we finish here in a few minutes, we'll be a wee bit clearer about that. So, yeah, hold out for that, uh, some, some sense of what this whole book is about. Three weeks ago, Sam was helping us to deal with chapter 3 of Jonah. And if you remember, Jonah finally makes it to the city of Nineveh. He preaches in the city, and, and a miracle happens. Because the whole city hears the message and they turn from their evil ways and they repent. And and Sam helped us to see that that was like a totally unexpected and unlikely outcome. Jonah wasn't probably expecting that. None of us, as we read it, were really expecting it. So, you know, you're just thinking, goodness, Jonah must be over the moon. He went to preach to a city thinking... These guys will at least abuse me, possibly kill me. They're, you know, I'll be lucky to get out of there alive. He, he went there thinking, well, they're certainly not going to listen to the message that I have for them. And, and now look at this. The whole city, we're told, um, including their king, uh, repents. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's a bit of a Disney ending uh, to the book of Jonah. I mean, if, if we just continued on that trajectory, we, we might finish it. Verse, we might write a, an extra verse at the end of chapter 3. Let's put it in Bible-sounding language. And Jonah returned to his own land rejoicing. That's it. He did what God asked him to do. He went to Nineveh, preached, the people repented, and he went to his own land rejoicing. Would have been a great ending, but we know because uh, we've just read chapter 4 that that isn't how the book ends. So let's, let's have a wee look at chapter 4 then, this surprising, again, chapter at the end of the book. The narrator tells us right away that Jonah didn't be rejoicing at this point. He was greatly displeased and came angry. For the first time here, we're told why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Up until now, following the biblical text, we, we weren't sure. We had to guess why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. So in the very opening verse of the book, God had commanded him to go. And we're told in chapter 1, verse 3, he ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. But, but we're not told why. And now, Jonah himself tells us why. He says it in a sort of a a prayer to God. And it's an accusation against God. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See what he's saying? I knew I couldn't trust you. I knew I couldn't trust you to hate the same people that I hate. 
And there you've gone and done it. You've showed yourself. I knew that if I got a God like you anywhere near these people, if they took even the smallest step, the smallest move in your direction, the smallest gesture of repentance, I knew that you'd forgive them. I've had enough with you. I resign. Take, take my life, he says. We sometimes give our kids a hard time at home if they're uh, overdramatic. Jonah has a wee touch of the dramatic about him. It's an astonishing speech. Short, but absolutely astonishing. One of the weirdest things in the Bible, probably in the whole of ancient literature. And it begs a question. Why would Jonah be quite so angry at God's grace to these people in Nineveh? Well, think about it for a second. What is it that normally makes us angry? Unmet expectation? Thwarted desire? Even after all this time, he's been to Nineveh, he's preached an urgent warning, a judgment on the people, Jonah's still holding out some hope that God's going to judge them, that he'll do it. He wants God to do a Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows how to wipe out a city if he chooses to do it. Jonah's waiting for the hellfire and brimstone. It's weird, isn't it? Why would any person who believes in a God of grace as the people of Israel did, as their prophet surely would have, as any Christian people today do. Why would any person who believes in this God be angry when God shows grace to this huge city? Jonah's angry because he still thinks, he still thinks that God's grace is only for him and for his kind. He still lives in a them and us world. Us, those people who have received God's grace, who would never admit to thinking it, but think that we somehow deserve it. And them, who haven't experienced God's grace, because actually, do you know what? They, they don't deserve it in the same way that I and my type do. Jonah loathed Assyrian people. And the idea that God would forgive them is is the worst possible outcome for him. Jonah preached his message. You might think, well, Jonah, you know, he did okay for them. He went and preached. Look what he got to preach. He got to preach a message that he hoped would come true. God's going to flatten this place. He preached it with great relish because he hoped it would happen. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want them to receive God's mercy. He was happier to keep his them and us thing going. There's a line in a 2014 U2 song, Invisible, where Bono challenges 
these dearly held notions we have of us and them. He says, there is no them, there's only us. And it's a challenge to people like Jonah, to people like me, to people who imagine that, that some people are somehow entitled to, to God's grace and others aren't. No. There is no them, there is no us, there's only us, only people who are entirely lost without an experience of God's grace. So Jonah's angry because God's been gracious to these definitive others, the them in his world, the Ninevites. And he's so angry that he says, verse 3, Now, O Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. This chapter is all about anger. It says that in the title in the NIV. The word anger and the idea just keeps coming back. So as I've been preparing to preach, I've been thinking a bit about anger. Thinking what I know about anger and what I've experienced of anger. I don't know if I'm right, but here's a suggestion. It seems to me that when we're angry, we vindicate ourselves in our view. Whenever we're feeling angry, we tend to believe that our anger is right and reasonable. In fact, whenever we're intensely angry about something, we imagine that it couldn't be any other way. After what you've said to me or what you've done or after what you haven't said or haven't done, I have no choice. I have to feel angry. We all like to believe that our anger is is righteous anger. Jonah's feeling angry, but it's not righteous anger. God doesn't think it is. So he challenges him. Verse 4, he asks his grumpy prophet, you know, do you have any right to feel angry? And if it's true that we vindicate our anger, God, God knows that. So he doesn't simply ask a question. He knows that Jonah isn't going to give a, a wise, mature response. So, so God starts a chain of events to show Jonah how daft his anger is. And that's what this whole plant thing is. I was chatting to some people yesterday about Jonah 4, and they were saying, what, what's the plant about? Let's, let's see what, what it might be all about. Jonah's sitting outside the city. He's hoping that God's going to relent of his relenting, that he's going to change his mind, that his grace is going to be short-lived, and that the hellfire and brimstone still might come. And while he's sitting waiting, it's hot there, so he builds himself a shelter, And God kindly grows a plant, some sort of fast-growing vine type of plant. And bear in mind, I do want to point this out again, God's ruling over the natural order right through this book of Jonah. Do you remember how we noticed in chapter 1 that it's God who sent the storm and God who sent the fish? Well, now God sends the plant. And in the middle of the angry chapter, 
we've got happy Jonah. It says it. Jonah's happy. Verse 6, very happy about the vine. Whenever he receives God's grace, even in a small way, in this case it's a bit of shade from a hot sun, it makes him happy. Jonah's comfortable. And he likes being comfortable. And he's happy when he's comfortable. So am I. I like being comfortable. And it makes me happy too. Jonah's happiness here is short-lived because God intervenes. And he takes away the comfort that he's granted. He intervenes by sending a worm, a hungry caterpillar, you know, something just gets in there, gets to the root of this thing, and, and takes it down very quickly. And if you read carefully, you'll see that God provided the worm, and then God provided a scorching wind to make sure that this vine dies. Storm, fish, worm, well, vine first, worm, and then wind. God provides all of these things. God's just got... Jonah, where he needs him to be to take this grumpy prophet and to teach him the stuff that he needs to learn. Sun blazes down on Jonah's head, and I'm sure you maybe noticed it as we read it. He repeats the same words that he had spoken in verse 3. It would be better for me to die than to live. Folks, here's what I see as the point of this whole vine episode. Jonah is angry with God about his relenting and not judging Nineveh. And he feels justified in that anger. So God takes this unusual step with this plant. And the whole point is to show him how unrighteous and how arbitrary his anger is. Jonah, you, you're angry. And you think you're right to be angry about what I've done with the Ninevites. But look at your anger. This vine, you're angry about that. This shows that your anger tends to be selfish. Whenever things are going your way, you're happy. Whenever things are not going your way, you get grumpy and and angry. As soon as your circumstances go against you, this vine and your anger about it, it shows that you're getting angry about the wrong stuff. You care about the wrong stuff. You care more about your comfort than you do about 120,000 people. You're more upset that this vine shrivels up and dies than that 120,000 people would shrivel up and die under my judgment. Have you no compassion at all? Ouch. God's grace and his pointing out of Jonah's ungrace will be stretching Jonah beyond what he can bear. Throughout this book, God has, or Jonah hasn't been able to put up with the radical grace of God. Can you? 
Are you comfortable with this God we're talking about? I suspect none of us is. There's a call here to the city. Great numbers of people to diversity. He's been called from a homogenous world where people are all like him, the world of us, to the world of them, people who are unlike me, people who are different. And folks, I have a sense that this is something that we we need to learn and grow into. God's call away from who we are and what we are to the other, to the other place, to the other people, to the diverse places of the world. This call to the city that we're reading about here isn't an exception. Somebody might say, you can't make a big deal about God calling Jonah to a city from the book of, of Jonah. You can't generalize from one call on one particular person. Well, let's, let's back up for a second and have a, a bigger view of the Bible on this. God did call Jonah to go to Assyria, the great superpower of his day, and share the news of his grace with them. Wind forward a couple of hundred heartbreaking years, and what you get is Judah, the part of God's uh, kingdom that hasn't God's people, that hasn't already been overrun and taken into captivity. This time they're taken into captivity in Babylon. And what does God say to them there? Stay away from those pesky Babylonians. Don't have anything to do with them. Keep yourselves to yourselves. No. We've been thinking about this in our summer, in our evening services throughout this year. In Jeremiah 29, God writes a letter to his people and he says to them, pray for the peace and the prosperity of that city. Settle down in it. Have families. Grow crops. Be for Babylon. So he tells Israel to bring a message of grace to Assyria. He tells Judah to be for the people of Babylon. What happens when the, the, the new movement, the new Jesus movement gets going? Those early chapters of Acts. That stuff we looked at the last couple of months before this series. As soon as they find new life for themselves in Jerusalem, the pond starts to ripple as they move out and out and out. If, if we looked at um, the chapters from chapter 13 of Acts onwards, what we'd discover is that uh, Peter and Paul, Paul in particular, just moves out through the Roman Empire from one city to the next. One group of people who are different than he is in his Judaism to the next, to the next, to the next. Because the message of God's grace isn't for us, it's for them. We tend to be against diversity. We love nothing better than to cluster together with people who are like us. Find a suburb of the city where we feel at home and stick there. But God's heart is for the whole and for all, for the whole city, the people in Belfast who are totally unlike us. 
I was thinking about this, and I thought, well, who would I lay before the people as an example of people who are unlike us? And I thought, where does the list end? I was maybe drawn to a stereotype, the Sinn Féin voter in West Belfast. But what about the DUP voter down the Newton Arts Road? What about the person who's different than us simply because they aren't successful at what they do in life in the way that most of us have been privileged to be? What about them, as we still call them? All of this begs a question this Jonah story, this, this call to the other, this call to the city. And the question is, could we do it? Could we actually learn to care about other people beyond our tribe? Could we learn to love a city like this and the whole of it? Most of us, it seems to me, don't believe that we could. We're sitting here and we're thinking... That's, that's very inspiring. You know, I'm glad that story's in the Bible. I'm sure, I'm sure that's very, yeah, I'm sure there's something there. But we feel destined to, to a life of ongoing selfish tribalism. We feel like we're destined to go through the rest of our lives still thinking about us and them. I think it's in the closing verses of this book of Jonah that we get a glimpse of how God might change us. In these closing verses, God says to Jonah, Jonah, you didn't have compassion on that city, but but I will. It's as though God's implying that he's going to find a way to love uh, violent, wicked, godly people in violent, wicked, godly cities. And, And what does he mean? How did God do what Jonah didn't do. Well, Richie helped us to think about this last week. Pointed us to Jesus Christ, the one who said he was somewhat like Jonah, but actually totally different. The greater Jonah. Jonah, as we've seen here today, he gets angry when his comfort is threatened. Jesus Christ does the ultimate leaving your comfort zone when he leaves all the privilege that he has in heaven to come and to be among people who made it decidedly uncomfortable for him. Jonah preached judgment against the people of Nineveh. Jesus Christ preached grace and forgiveness and gave his life to win it. Jonah had his near miss with death, spent three days in a dark place. Jesus Christ died. He rose again and he called this the sign of Jonah. Folks, it's it's the greater Jonah who must become the focus of our attention. Following him, being drawn in love to him, being open to receive the grace that he's already given us and then allowing it to turn us inside out. That's 
how we'll grow to be the kind of people who can live for the other, not just for ourselves. We're finishing just now and finishing this whole series on Jonah. So let's just have a a quick look at the, the written, the biblical ending to the book of Jonah. The last words in the book are given to God. And as Richie says, we're we're listening for questions that God's asking us today. He asked Jonah a question. He says, should I not be concerned about that great city? He's asking Jonah, shouldn't your love be like mine? Isn't it time you got your head out of your own backside and started living for me and for other people? That's the question. And we're waiting for an answer. And it doesn't come. The book just ends. It looks like a rubbish ending, doesn't it? I think it's a really skillful piece of writing. Because as this whole book comes to an end... It's as if God, in these closing exchanges, has aimed an arrow of loving rebuke right at Jonah. And it's, it's been set, set to flight, and it's in the air, and it's about to hit Jonah square in the chest, and Jonah steps aside. And I'm standing behind him. And it hits me. Because I am Jonah. And so are you. We only care about our own comfort. We don't care for others either. See that Egypt sitting getting grumpy under the vine? That's me, that is. We don't care about the great cities of our world. We don't care about Belfast. We don't care about the people in our immediate community or even in our families if they make life difficult for us. And so the question for each one of us, am I willing to change? Willing to become a little bit less of this Jonah who we've been learning about these last weeks, and a little bit more like the greater Jonah, the one who gave his life for his enemy, for the other. I think that's probably the question God's asking us today. Let's pray. Father God, we, we struggle when you do this to us. When you hold the mirror up and you show us who we really are.
Lord, I pray that you'll help us not to run from the mirror too quickly. Save us from being self-righteous. Help us instead to see how graceless we really are. And then, Lord, we pray that you would turn us from from the Jonahs that we are to the greater Jonah that your son is. And, Lord, let his grace fill our shriveled hearts. Let his loving gaze give us new eyes to see. Lord, we pray that this this life that we live and this life that we make together as a community wouldn't become any more selfish than it already is. But rather, Lord, that you'd change us, transform us, give us a heart for others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.